Larry Wilmore here, host of the podcast, Larry Wilmore, Black Um Air. Now, in my latest episode, I talked to Senator Bernie Sanders about the state of the Democratic Party and the polarization happening in America and Trump's rise to power. And Trump picked up and he said, you know what? I feel your pain. The establishment is ignoring you. I, Donald Trump, I, of all people. I'm going to take on the establishment. Well, he lied, of course. Yeah. But that was his message. So you can hear this episode in full and subscribe to my show by searching for Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify Mobile, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to High Upside. I'm your host, Kevin O'Connor, and I'm joined today by the Ringer.com's Jonathan Charks. Today, we're going to be discussing the 2017 drafts, wings and forwards, 3D role players, and their importance in today's NBA. Charks, what's happening? Nothing much, man. How you doing? I'm doing really well, man. Like so, so far with High Upside, we've spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about the elite players, the, the big names in the draft, like guys like Markel Fultz, Fultz and Malik Monk and Jonathan Isaac, Filthy Frank Nicotine, Lonzo Ball. You know, I think that's what a lot of people spend their time focusing on, just like in the NBA. It's about LeBron and Steph and other guys like that. But the league is made up, for the most part, of role players, guys who fill responsibilities, enhance the skills of their kind of their primary option teammates and so the guys we're talking about today the wings swings forwards like whatever position designate, designation you want to give them that that's our focus so charks how, how do you see teams using these type of kind of filler role players in the nba and the nba playoffs well it just seems like you never can have enough of those guys like there's always there's always room on your roster for more guys who can shoot threes and switch screens and guard two or three positions and it really feels like that's as like has been discussed endlessly over the last few years. That's just the way the league is going. You have to have two, three, or four of these guys on your roster or in your rotation. Because if you don't, you can't space the floor for your best players and you can't guard anybody. And if you can't do those things, you're not going to win very many games. Who are some of the guys that kind of stand out to you that do fill that role in, in this year's NBA playoffs? Oh, I mean, you know, you got guys like... I guess the classic ones, um, I mean, I'm Boston's full of them. Avery Bradley, Jay Crowder. You got guys like in Cleveland, Amon Shumpert, J.R. Smith, kind of. Golden State has like five of them. I mean, San Antonio, <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan Simmons Smith, on the Spurs. Danny, yeah, Jonathan Smith, Simmons, Danny Green. Like, I've, all the good teams have multiple guys who can do these things. You know, the thing is, is, like, historically, these guys come from everywhere in the draft. Like, Bruce Bowen, kind of the original 3 and D guy, was undrafted, which is, you know, hard to believe looking back. And, and that these guys fall in the draft. A lot of them, I think, are hiding in plain sight. And so, like... I think this is represented nicely in, in our big boards on the tw on the Ringer's 2017 NBA Draft Guide, which you can, people can view at nbadraft.theringer.com. And you have more traditional big men that, that other sites have ranked in the mid-first mid round or even like the, the early first round, kind of behind some of these people that tend to fall in the draft. What's your rationale behind this decision? I just look at it in terms of uh, value positionally. You look at the teams like, Portland's a good example. They have three first-round picks in this year's draft. They have, what, like four centers in their roster? Pretty much every team in the league already yeah. has multiple centers. And the way this league is played, the game is played right now, you can pretty much only play one at a time. And every once in a while, you can play two at a time. But for the most part, you just only need two or three of those guys on your roster. 
So the guys, so A, there's fewer spots for these guys and there's more of them available. So just in terms of the value of where you can get them in the draft, it's not as like, back in the day it used to be, oh, if a guy six eleven, he can play, there's always a spot for him on your team. Well, that's not, not the case anymore. Unless someone's really, really good, I feel like they're very replaceable as a big man. So I'd rather, all things being equal, take a wing over a big, unless I really, really like that big man. What do you think? How do you have your board set up? It's it's similar to yours in the sense that I have a lot of those those wings that we're going to discuss, like the Devin Robinsons of the world, Wesley Iwundu's ahead of some of those big men. The, the thing that I found fascinating, though, is like, it's not like this conversation is necessarily new. Like this, this happens a lot of the time. Like, like you look back at last year's draft, some of the guys who slipped. I know everybody on draft night talked about Patrick McCaw, who fell to, fell to 38 to the Warriors. You could talk about Malcolm Brogdon from the Bucks, who could be this year's rookie of the year. He went 36. Uh, like some of these guys, they fall every year. Why, why do you think it is that teams haven't necessarily adjusted to place a higher value on these guys in the 20s range. I'm not talking like lottery picks, but in that post-lottery range, 15 to 30, it's just kind of unusual how a lot of them haven't shifted up. They're just hiding in plain sight, it seems, every year. Well, I think it's a couple things. The first is that they're being asked to play such a narrow role. I think it's probably easier for these guys to bust out. So like, if your job in the NBA is to shoot 26-foot catch-and-foot shots and guard the best players in the league, there's not much prep for that at the college level. The three-point line is much shorter. College defense is more team-oriented. You're playing fewer good players. And NBA team, NBA coaches don't really trust rookies that much. So it's just hard for those guys to get minutes. So it's like, oh, I draft a guy who's not going to play. And it's like, well, we can always find a guy like that on the street anyways. So let's just wait to the second round to get him. Whereas big men... It's, I feel it's also easier to scout big men because there's fewer good ones and they're asked to do more. Like a big man plays with a ball in his hands, you get a pretty good feel for what he can do in the NBA. Whereas a guy who shoots like four threes off the ball and moves it, it's easy to kind of lose track of him in a college game and what kind of, and what really is valuable at the next level. I mean, what do you look for for you in terms of three and D guys? What are your main kind of criteria you want to see at the college level? So I wrote a wrote an article about this in the Ringer this week, just about how these guys are found and how they're found really throughout the draft. I mean, sometimes sometimes <clears throat> a lottery lottery pick can fall back on three indie skills if they don't necessarily reach their potential. And then then there's guys who go undrafted where it's like, huh, you know, maybe in a couple of years if he just improves his three a little bit or his defense a little bit, he can fill that role eventually. So I mean, you do. I think I need to see at least an indication of three-point potential or defensive potential I, I prefer when a guy can come in and shoot right away like that's that's what I care most about because I think so much of success on the defensive end of the floor has to do with effort and I think I think changing someone's three-pointer or improving someone's three-pointer can be a lot harder because of historically just how, how frequently it doesn't happen I mean we talk about so often with guys if only he improved his three-pointer if only he improved his three-pointer but really sometimes a guy just needs to fall into the right situation to improve defensively um, as long as they have like a, a, a foundation defensively a foundation athletically rather I think that they can become a good plus defensive player so I, I do like to see um, three-point potential from a guy uh, early in his career charks um who were some of the guys that like we're talking about here we, we haven't really given a, a, a name to a face yet uh who are some of the people that pe people should be thinking about i mean i think the guy most people are looking at right now first is uh justin jackson at unc 
he's one of those guys everyone's always saying, oh, if he could ever run the shoot. Well, he shot well this year. He shot seven threes a game at 37%. He's 6'8", six, 6'9", six, eight, six, six, eight, six, wing player. He was UNC's main option. If you watched the NCAA tournament, you probably saw him. He was their best player on a championship team. And he's probably the most high profile of these quote-unquote 3 and D guys. Then you have guys like Sundarius Thornwell, who went to South Carolina, took him to the Final Four. You have Luke Kennard, who's more of a pure shooter from Duke. You have Josh Hart, who uh, was one of Villanova's best players two years ago when it's the national championship game. And then you have a few more off-the-radar guys like Devin Robinson of Florida, Wesley Awindu at Kansas State. There's, I guess there's a lot of names. We're throwing a lot of names at you guys, but those are kind of the bigger ones. There's Terrence Ferguson, who was a high schooler last year with Australia. So, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of guys. It's kind of hard to differentiate them sometimes because there's like seven or eight, he's like three or D-ish players floating around the first round. Hey, Tate, I want to get your opinion on Justin Jackson. Yeah. Because you, Tate, Tate Frazier is Mr. North Carolina Tar Heel here at the ringer. And that's true. I, I want Tate, like, <laughs> make, the, make the case for Justin Jackson because I, I, I think he's just okay. He's just, just another, another guy to me. Yeah, I think the big the big problem with the the Justin Jackson thing is that Justin is a guy that everyone thinks is going to play small forward, but I think he's going to play the two guard. He's going to be, we're saying he's three and D, but he's really going to be a shooting guard. So if you look at it like that, you know, Clay Thompson, six, seven, instead of Justin Jackson, six, eight, I, I want him to go to the bulls. I want him to go to a franchise that actually will actually, you know, groom him and make him good. Not like the doc rivers Clippers thing where you don't play for two years and Oof. you hate basketball by the end of it. <laughs> So, like your boy, um, Reggie Bullock. Yeah, like Reggie Bullock or Bryce Johnson, what he's currently doing there. So I'm hoping Justin goes to like an actual franchise that that wants to uh, give him the chance to actually play the two guard and be good because he, he's already went through it too. Like his confidence was completely shot after last year at the at the combine, and I think he came back from that. So I, I like that you know he's gotten over a hurdle already. So that's that's my selling point Tate, on Justin. Tate, do you buy his jumper improvements at 37% this year on nearly 300 attempts? Do you think that's for real, the, the adjustments he made? He broke Shimon Williams' record uh, for three-pointers in a season, so I, I do buy it. I've also seen Justin uh, since he was in 11th grade, and I've always thought he had a good jump shot. I've always liked his form. The main thing with Justin is that he also has the ability to get that little floater off. So it's like the freshman floater, right, in the NBA. He'll be able to get that little shot when he needs to when the jumper's not going in. And he proved in the tournament, like, he can guard Monk. He can guard Nigel Williams-Goss. He can guard all these guys that are going to be one or two guards in the NBA. And I think that was the biggest thing I was concerned about because when I looked at him, I was like, how is he going to guard Jimmy Butler? How is he going to guard Paul George? How is he going to guard Giannis Antetokounmpo? Well, he's not. He's probably not going to guard those guys. You know, he's going to guard the Malcolm Brogdons of the world if he's playing the Bucks. Or so I don't know. I I think him as a shooting guard is what really translates. I don't like him as a three guy as playing the small forward though. Yeah, it's interesting because he played a lot of four too at UNC. Yeah, so you're moving him way up the positions. Yeah. So and I think that's what what he was trying to prove in the tournament by guarding those guys. I mean, there was a there was a lot of back and forth uh, behind the scenes where Theo wanted to guard Monk. Like Theo Pinsa wanted to guard Monk because Theo's probably the best defender on the team, but Justin was like, no, I'm guarding him. You know, like he, he took it upon mm -hmm. himself to basically, it was like to prove that I'm worthy of being a lottery pick. I have to show I can play defense and guard these guys at the one or two because that's what I need to do in the NBA. Do you think he was successful in that, Charks? I mean, he guarded Monk really well. I still worry about his athletic ability, though, as a two. Like, I don't know how, like, really fast and athletic he really, like, getting down his stance and guarding. I mean, I guess if he guarded Monk, but I don't know. I still see him as more of a backup three than a starting two. We'll see, I guess. 
I'd, I'd say the guy that I like more than Jackson, and I think I believe you, you're on the same page with me here, Charks, is, is Wesley Iwundu from Kansas State. Uh, what, what, what's your feeling on him, and what, what are the traits that you like so much about him, Charks? Well, to me, a guy like Iwundu, he falls in the category like if you believe in a shot, because he only shot threes for one year at Kansas State, and he only took two and a half a game. So the shot's a big question mark with him. But if you think he can shoot well enough, he's 6'7", 193, 7 foot 1 wingspan. He's an excellent athlete. And I think, I think the thing that gets overlooked a lot with these guys is Wendu has a good feel for the game. He was the primary option at Kansas State. He kind of ran point for them a lot. He moved the ball, found gets the pick and roll. And I think for younger players, you have to convince your coaches to play you first off. And if your three-point shot's not there for a week or two, and your defensive stuff, you're doing a defense. You have to be a smart player. You have to have a good feel for the game. You have to make the right passes. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to get on the floor. And that's why I think a window really separates himself from a lot of the more specialized players in this pool. It kind of reminds me of like Jay Crowder a bit. I remember Jay's first year in Dallas. He didn't shoot very well. He struggled athletically at times. But Rick really loved his feel for the game, how he moved the ball and made that simple play every time. So I have two thoughts on him. I think I think for one, um, at the NBA Combine, I thought I thought he was completely overwhelmed athletically. Uh, it was it wasn't necessarily a pretty two day performance for him. Um, but on the other hand, it's not really the type of structure that game structure where I would expect him to perform well. I mean, you mentioned his feel for the game, and and that that's what I love so much about him is. So we're talking about him in the context of a three and D player, where he can be your spot up shooter on offense, fill a little bit of a role, and then defend multiple positions defensively. I feel confident he's going to be able to do that. But but I also think you know in terms of feel for the game, he can do more. He shows very very good passing instincts, passing vision, and I think he's a good ball handler for his size at 6'7 with a 7'1 wingspan that he can play a little bit of big guard for you potentially there's no guarantees because he does need for his skill to translate athletically he does need to to really adjust to the speed of the game which he did have a hard time doing at the combine but with him he could be potentially down the line one of those three and d plus guys where he has that skill set to fall skill set to fall back on if his skills don't necessarily develop the way you would like but he could also be something more. And I think that's the major appeal with him. And that's why it's kind of surprising where so often I see him ranked on other, other sites in the mid second round to the back second round. I, I just feel like he could be this year's steal where, where we look back and say, why the hell did he drop that far? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is where you end up. You, you go somewhere where a coach will play you. Or there's a need for your need for your time. I mean, it's very easy for guys to slip through the cracks. Look at Danny green. He fell out of the league twice before the Spurs kind of gave him a shot. Yeah, yep. And I think that's with all these guys because it'll take them a couple years to get their defensive chops up, to learn the league, to learn everybody's scouting report, because the, to be accustomed to that three point further three point shot. So it's just it's just going to take time, and I feel like it's kind of hard to project that on some level. A lot of that is just their own how much they're willing to work and how smart a player they are more than anything. Just a quick break, John, to get a word from our sponsor. Lately, I've been noticing watch brands getting into this whole minimalist vibe. You know what I'm talking about. Those plastic-looking watches you win out of claw machines at arcades. There's no way that belongs in your wrist. 
you need a watch that makes a statement for the right reason. And I've found that at VinceroCollective.com. Vincero is the go-to watch brand for modern men with innovative and luxurious timepieces that are also affordable. They've quickly become my preferred watch brand. I've been wearing the Bellwether Rose Gold and Black, a beautiful watch from Vincero that I think works whether you're going out for a night to watch a basketball game or you're just hanging around with your friends at a home or a bar watching the NBA Finals. Vincero has the versatility you need. With a full grain Italian leather band and genuine Italian marble back, I was honestly stunned that Vincero watches start at just over 100 bucks. But listeners of High Upside get a discount. To receive 15% off your very own Vincero watch, go to vincerocollective.com slash NBA. That's V-I-N-C-E-R-O collective.com slash NBA. Build your legacy today at vincerocollective.com. How how do you how do you assess basketball IQ, Charks? You me, you mentioned that with him. Um, what are the indicators you look for for basketball IQ and feel? To me, that's where you really want to watch these guys play. You want to watch a lot of their games. You want to watch just watch them on the floor. Watch how they move. Watch their defensive rotations. Watch if they can read the floor well. That's where I think a lot of guys can get. You can go on the wrong path with these guys if you're watching their YouTube clips or just highlights. Because you'll see the best plays they make. But for, to me, if anything, I want to see the worst plays they're making. I want to see the games they go one for 10 for the field, how they adjust their games to the situation around them. It's really, that's more than anything, it's just pure feel. That's just watching guys play a lot. And more. I think that's, and like what you were saying, you want to watch them in a structured five-on-five college game. That's why I don't worry too much about this NBA combine stuff. What are you looking for in terms of a guy's feel? So, I mean, I think the most important thing, you know, that you kind of mentioned there, John, is that you do need to watch the games. Like, you can't just pop on a highlight reel to get a, to get a sense for his feel. And I, I wrote an article, I, I think, before the college season started called How to Scout College Basketball. And I talked to, like, some NBA scouts and Mike Schmitz from Draft Express. And, and one of the things Mike said um, that's, you know, super important for someone that wants to or get into scouting or just scout for fun, like to scout for their favorite team, is spot shadowing. Like, just watching the player on the floor and that's it like focusing on nothing else like that's when you get an idea of the angles he takes on the defensive end when he's when he's trying to run through screens you can see when he's taking the right angles or the wrong angles you can see his footwork when he's closing out on shooters um that he that he might have to switch on that's where you see things where if somebody else has the ball on offense and you see how he fills space to get open for a three-pointer and all those things i think are a part of feel 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 is much bigger than that like it has to do with what happens when the ball is in your hands too but it matters a lot what's going to happen, how you perform without the ball in your hands, because so much in today's NBA offenses has to do with what's happening off the ball. And I think sometimes, like watching games, that's where the more interesting things are happening. Like we see that with the Warriors. We're going to see it in the finals. We see that with the Celtics in the last round. We saw that where they, there's so much off ball action happening. That's where these guys need to perform. And that's where feel for the game, basketball IQ, and just their, their ability just to execute plays is, is super, super important. Sometimes more so than like athleticism or, or big things that, you know, we talk about. It's their feel and their ability to execute plays. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of us who do this long enough, you kind of watch a great athlete, you fall in love with his speed and his tools, and then the the, the head for the game is not there, and you kind of get burned on that. And it's always like an intersection, because rarely are you going to find a guy with the elite athletic ability and the elite feel. Then you're talking like lottery picks, you know, your best players. But it feels like with all these guys, they're either better at one or the other. 
they're either thinking the game at a really high level, they're not great athletes, or they're great athletes who need to, who need to learn how to who need to learn how to play the game. So, like for you, who would you say is like is a great athlete? You want to see, watch them, learn more about how to play. Like you worry about their basketball IQ in this draft. The, the name that comes right to mind is Devin Robinson from from Florida. He's probably mm-hmm. like the best athlete out of any name we've discussed yet. Six eight, yeah, seven that's, one that's wingspan. So. That dude can leap, but the IQ. Well, I mean, uh, he needs he needs to improve there. I'd say, and, and he needs to prove himself as a as a more consistent defender as well. Yeah, for me, the guy is uh, Dwayne Bacon at Florida State. Like, he's a guy at That's college who shot like 15, 16 times a game. And, like, I love the guy's athletic ability, but will he adjust to playing a more limited role? Can he handle shooting six times a game, moving the ball, not just holding it constantly? And that's a big adjustment, too, for a lot of these guys. Because in the NBA, they won't get very many touches like they did in college. For Bacon, the uh, best-case scenario comparisons we have for Dwayne Bacon are Dion Waiters, Lance Stevenson, Malachi Richardson, just to give an idea of, like, the type of player he is. But with all those guys, it's like, you know, everybody knows watching him, watching them in the NBA, you think, you know, if only they did certain things better. And with Bacon, it's very much the same where that dude, like, is a bull. Like, he has a great NBA body. He should be able yeah. to, on paper, defend every position. It's just you don't see that consistently from him. I think I think sometimes he locks in and you do see that. But that, that's the frustrating part. And, like, that's the hard part in all of this is there are guys who are going to fall into the second round where they might get drafted into a situation where th- they don't have a defense first, defense first identity and they aren't asked to defend or they are they they're in a losing situation and team the and when march comes along and everybody's starting to plan their vacations out there's no time for them to really figure out how to defend and how to do it consistently night in and night out and th- that's where it's so hard because situation for a lot of these role players more so than the top guys is what determines their success yeah that's where i think the d league is so big what the spurs did with jonathan simmons like i feel like the d league should be a hundred six six wings playing five on five like just constantly <laughs> guarding each other. That's all it should be. Just a wing training school. Like play a year, get like 500 reps shooting threes, you know, 500 reps switching screens. Like, cause there's a lot of these guys. I mean, there's guys we're not even talking about who have that basic skill set. Like Jonathan Simmons. I mean, me and you watched a lot of college basketball. I never heard the guy's name before he came in the league. Like there's so many <laughs> college teams out there with six, four, six, five athletes. You can't see them all. And good, two good examples of that, guys that you can't see them all, Sterling Brown and Shemi Ojale from SMU, two guys from the same school. They're forward slash wings players. Uh, you and I, I, th- I believe we both have Brown ranked in the first round, and and he's someone that could maybe go undrafted. I, I think he's going to end up getting drafted, um, but there's a chance he does You know, go undrafted. There's a chance he's ended up somebody that they use one of their t- new two-way contracts on. Uh, you're from Texas, um, John. What do you like about Sterling Brown? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky enough. I like I'm from Dallas, so I've got to watch them play a lot over the last few years. I know some of the SMU coaches. Uh, Tate's boy actually is he does something at SMU. I forget now what it is. And they all love Sterling Brown. His feel for the game is really high. He's the leader of the team. Great character. Four year player, three or four year starter. He's the younger brother of um, Shannon Brown. Not as good an athlete as his older brother, but probably a higher feel for the game. 45% three-point shooter. To me, he's just a really smart player who can stroke the ball, guard two or three positions. Uh, not a great athlete. There's a lot of Malcolm Brogdon. That's the guy everyone's trying to find this year. To me, Sterling Brown is probably the closest Brogdon type of anyone in this draft. So I'm really 
I'm really high on him, but I've watched him a lot, so maybe I'm too close to see his flaws. Who's the guy you really like as a 3 and D guy that kind of under the radar? So, I mean, we're, we're on the same page with, with Sterling Brown. The, the one guy that we're kind of divided on, and this surprises me because of you know, the type of players you tend to like, is Shemi Ojale from the same school. I, I, I think I prefer him over Brown largely because of his body and, and his athleticism. I think he'll be able to guard bigs a little bit better than Brown will be. Um, he might not have the same level of feel, I think, as Brown, um, but, I, but I feel good about his, his ability defensively. I feel better about him as an at-room finisher attacking closeouts, but I believe you have him kind of in the middle to the end of the second round what is it about brown that you're turned off about i mean with ojale i view him more of as a, a big who can play a little Ojale's outside okay. versus a pure wing i don't think he has a very high feel for the game and like yeah he's not a great body like he jumps off he's one of those guys who could be a great football player but to me he's more of a big with a little prim- perimeter skills i put him more like in the he's not as bad athlete as caleb swanigan or jonathan motley but i view him as more of that kind of player versus like a pure two or three you can swing out like to me semi's more of a four or five and i'm not really sure he's going to be much of a perimeter defender despite his he's athletic but i'm not sure if i really buy him as a perimeter defender i guess that's why i'm a little lower than you how about his age transferred from duke 22 already does that play into it at all at all or do you just like i forget age you know overrated age is just a number i mean i'm not r kelly or anything age is important uh but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess to me, I've always viewed Semi as more of a big than a wing. And I, I didn't feel his feel for the game as really high at all. I thought he took a lot of really bad shots at SMU. He didn't, to me, I don't know, I just never really, he's one of those guys I feel like the more you watch Semi, the more you kind of come away leaving not that impressed with him. Like you watch him once, this guy could be a great player. But the more I watch him, I just don't feel his feel as that high, I guess, as part. I feel like he's more of a big who can shoot threes and yeah, I'm just not really. To me, I'd take a, take a chance on a guy like Josh Hart, or even or even uh, or Sundarius Thornwell. Like, I'd rather have Sundarius Thornwell than Semi Ojeley, and they're they're kind of the same spot in the NBA. Thornwell's six five two fifteen, but he's faster. He's more perimeter oriented, and I'd rather have that kind of player versus more of a big who plays outside. If that makes sense, I'd rather have a guard who plays inside than a big who plays outside. You know, I I think there have been guys where you know we we do look at their feel and they end up improving over time are there certain traits that you see that um may indicate the ability to improve feel i i because i tend to think it's a hard thing to improve i think a lot of the times you either have feel for the game or you don't um are there things that you look for that might indicate an ability to improve that no i think you're it's like thinking the game so i mean i guess the biggest thing is just growth over time in college like are they working on the gym are they, is the game slowing down for them? Assist to turnover ratio, is that getting better over time? Are they making better decisions than they made the year before is probably the biggest thing. Um, and there's the other on the spectrum, guy like Terrence Ferguson. How do you evaluate him with given his very limited track record and he barely played at Australia last year? Like, what do you think about Heath is a guy who could have a huge range of outcomes in this draft. He is he is tough to evaluate a because of limited exposure and b just because of the type of prospect he is. I mean he's he's an incredible athlete. Um, part part of me doesn't even look at him into the, like that three and D role. Um, I think maybe to start his career that's where he is and that's where you want him to be. You want him to turn into that into that three and D player. 
Um, the, the, the thing is with him is I think he also could potentially have higher ups, higher upside or potentially not even reach a three and E level. Cause you look at him and he is a super inconsistent shooter. Like his mechanics fall apart a lot, uh, especially off the dribble and defensively, you know, I think he'll be fine. I, I but I think a lot of the times, I mean, well, he's only not, just turned 19 really. Um, with him, I think it's a lot of it's going to be effort. It's going to be situation. I, I, I hope for Ferguson, he falls into a, a good situation where he's able to be molded, whether even if it's time in the G League um, or or if it's on, uh, coming off a team's bench, but a team with a defensive identity. I, we have him for the Bucks in our mock draft on uh, NBA.TheRinger.com, and I think that would be a great spot for him to A, learn and get experience at the same time. Yeah, to me, I just wonder, it's a weird, like, mix with him. What if he had gone to Arizona? Would he be seen as Kobe Simmons? Like, they're pretty similar athletically, and Simmons had a kind of up and down year at Arizona. He's really fallen a lot in the draft. Ferguson basically hit out all year in Australia. A few people watched him play. He had a really small role in an Australian team. So it's kind of like, how do you balance that? Because maybe there's some upside there, but there's a lot of downside, too, possibly not really taking into account. So with Ferguson, he's probably going to be a first rounder. Uh, I think I think we would expect that to happen. But a lot of these guys can be found outside the draft. And this, this year is unique in the sense that it's the first year where every team has two-way contracts. And those will allow teams to send guys to the G League, but also have them like at uh, their rights on their roster. Um, so there are, it's really a three-round draft this year. It's, it's three rounds and 90 picks. It's just the last round is going to be kind of, a, a I think, a wild, wild west in that sense where where it's going to be hard to predict where guys are going to go, but there are guys that stand out. I think, I think this year's deep with deep sleepers. Um, who are some guys that you like charts that may probably not get drafted, but you think either should, or that you're looking forward to seeing how they develop over the next couple of years. I mean, I think I put them into two camps. Like your really home run guy, home run guys is like Kobe Simmons. I'm surprised he's not going to, he's not being seen as drafted because he's a crazy good athlete. He, he just kind of get drafted. I think there's a chance. Yeah, I mean, I'd be surprised. Like, he's a guy I'll probably need to spend two years in the G League, but maybe he becomes, if he stayed in school for two years, maybe he's a first-round pick because he's got the outlines of a very interesting player. So that's the one end of the spectrum. On the other end, you have a guy, I, I think two kind of th- more off-the-rare 3ND guys, Peter Jock at Iowa and Reggie Upshot at Middle Tennessee State. Like, these are the kind of guys I was talking about. There's just so many 6'5", 6'6", can kind of sh- Jock can only really shoot threes. I'm surprised Jock hasn't gotten more more love actually. Upshaw's Upshaw's a guy, Middle Tennessee State. They won a tournament game the last two years. You watch him play as like he's an NBA athlete with a decent shot and good size. So who knows? What about you, Kevin? Who do you like as a sleeper? So I I like Jock as a sleeper. I, I I do worry about his defense, but that dude can stroke threes. Like that guy can really shoot the ball. And anytime you have that, I, I think you have a lot of appeal. He he'd be near the top of my undrafted list. Um, if I, if I'm if I'm really seeking out a a potential sharpshooter, um, two sleepers for me. Uh, Davon Reed um, from Miami. I, he's not a sleeper on on my board on, on in the NBA draft guide. Um, I have him in the low 30s. Uh, I really like Reed, but he might go undrafted because he's a senior, um, 22 years old. But I lo- I love his game. I, I think he I think he's a safe bet to be a 3 and D player. I like his, his shooting mechanics. Like he can shoot from NBA range. He can shoot a little bit off the dribble too. He's a hard-nosed defender. Like that that guy, I don't think it's going to be any issues at all him accepting his role and um being being willing to take on that responsibility. And then one of the other guys, kind of more, way more of a deep sleeper than him, 
is Jalen Moore from Utah State. I don't know if he's necessarily going to fit into that wing category. He's, he's a little bigger at 6'9", but that dude can really play. I mean, I think, I think he might need to get over some problems athletically, uh, kind of like with Peter Jock. But I think the ability is there for him to be a 3 and D player down the line. He's got a good stroke, um, good size. I think the you can at least project defensive ability. So he's someone that I'm looking forward to seeing where he goes. And, and it, wherever he goes, he's kind of like this year's DeAndre Bembry. He's got a beautiful afro. So he's going to stand out wherever he goes. And people are going to definitely be, I think, keeping eyes on him. Well, you've out-hipstered me, Kevin. I've never heard of this guy. So I'll check him out. That's it for this week's High Upside. Thank you, Jonathan, as always, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And thank you so much for listening to us. Please give the Ringer NBA show a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. And shout out to Tate Frazier for, for producing High Upside and to the band Oso Oso for providing our music. You can follow us all on Twitter at Ringer, at Kevin O'Connor NBA, at Jonathan Sharks, and at Tate Frazier. Enjoy the NBA Finals. Peace out. Peace out.